Welcome to this week's bonus episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. This episode discusses hemolytic anemias and is spearheaded by blood editor Dr. Mario Cazola. Dr. Cazola is joined by two of his authors, Dr. Rachel Grace and Dr. Akile Lolaskin. I am Mario Cazzola, a professor of hematology at the University of Pavia Medical School, Pavia, Italy, and currently I am an associate editor for blood. I am doing a translational research in the field of myeloid neoplasms with a focus on myelodysplastic syndromes and myeloproliferative neoplasms. When I was younger, at the beginning of my research activity, my major interest was anemia and also iron metabolism and its disorders. So I am currently, as an associate editor for blood, handling quite a few papers on anemia and iron metabolism. Here with me are Dr. Rachel Grace, Boston Children's Hospital, and Professor Achille Ioascon, Università Federico II di Napoli. When uh, we conceived uh, this review series on inherited anemias, we identified five articles. The first one is uh, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, or G6PD deficiency. And the article was prepared by Professor Lucio Luzzatto and uh, his colleagues. G6PD deficiency is one of the most common inherited disorders worldwide, with about 500 million people affected in the world. Professor Lucio Luzzatto is a leader in this field, and he is currently studying this disorder in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. The reason is that G6PD deficiency is particularly common in areas in which malaria was or is endemic because the heterozygous state for this condition confers an advantage, a protection against malaria. The second article is pyruvate kinase deficiency and was prepared by Rachel Grace and Virma Barcellini. The third article is on red cell membrane disorders and was prepared by Theodosia Kalfa and her colleagues. The fourth article is entitled Diamond Black Phalanemia, prepared by Lidida Costa and her colleagues. And the last article is a congenital dyserythropoietic anemias prepared by Achille Yolascon and his colleagues. I'm Rachel Grace. I'm a pediatric hematologist at the Dana-Farber Boston Children Cancer and Blood Disorder Center, and it's affiliated with Harvard Medical School. I was involved in this review series because with Wilma Barcellini wrote an article on the management of pyruvate kinase deficiency in children and adults. It's very timely for this article about the management of pyruvate kinase deficiency because there has recently been a number of developments in this disease. One is that we have a international registry for patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency, which is a very rare disorder, and have now learned a lot more about the variability and presentation of the disease, the complications patients have, the types of supportive management that they receive, and the complications of that supportive management. 
in addition to the registry and the clinical information that we've recently learned about the patients, there have been exciting recent clinical developments in terms of targeted treatment approaches for pyruvate kinase deficiency, something that these patients have never had before. And there has been recent interest in pyruvate kinase activators with data in particular for midapivot with recent publication of a phase two study in patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency in the New England Journal of Medicine. And what we've seen in that study was 50% of the patients had a hemoglobin response to the drug with a median increase of 3.5 grams per deciliter. In addition to that, there is a new gene therapy trial that's been opened for patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency. So this is a very exciting time for this disease for patients and providers who see these patients where we've learned a lot more about how to monitor patients, what kind of complications they have, and how to support them better. But now too, we have opportunity potentially in the future to have targeted treatments that might even change the way that these patients manifest their disease and hopefully it decreases the rate of these complications and the complications of our current supportive management. My name is Achille Jolascon, and I am professor of medical genetics at Naples University, Federico II in Naples. My field of interest are red cells. Since a long time, my group study all the membrane defects, and studying this, we arrived to the study on the congenital dyserythropoietic anemias because uh, there are uh, still now some issues and difficulties in the diagnosis of this disease, uh, which are very often confused with red cell membrane defects. And uh, in our review, we focused this, uh, the problem related to diagnosis and the problem related to the possibility to treat this condition and the clinical outcome of these conditions. These are a heterogeneous group of conditions. At least we identify five different groups, but two are the main groups, CDA type 1 and CDA type 2. Type 2 is more and more frequent. In my center, we followed more than 300 patients affected with this disease. This disease is clinically very heterogeneous and we could have a lifelong, very mild anemia, but we have also 10% of transfusion-dependent patients. For this, we have the need to found a new form of treatment. And now we are ready to start with a pharmacological treatment using a drug that was just known to be useful in thalassemia, which is the Luspartacept. And in the next March, the first clinical trial will start for these patients. And regarding the future, we hope also that for some of these patients, a gene therapy protocol certainly will start because we have the need to found a definitive cure for these patients. In defining this review series, our goal was twofold. First, to provide our readers with the most recent advances in the pathophysiology of inherited anemias. Second, to update clinicians about recent treatments for these disorders. When I read Rachel's article in the New England Journal of Medicine, I was uh, really impressed because uh, I started uh, to treat patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency in the 70s. 
many years ago, and uh, at that time uh, we didn't have any effective treatment, just splenectomy and red cell transfusion. So the idea that a compound which uh, behaves as a stimulator of uh, pyruvate kinase activity in deficient red cell could uh, work uh, in amelioration of anemia was uh, really astonishing. And so I decided to invite uh, Rachel and uh, Vilma Barcellini, my colleague in Italy, to prepare a review article on uh, pyruvate kinase deficiency and uh, its treatment. When I was invited to write this review article, I was excited about the opportunity. Blood has a very diverse readership, and I thought it was a good opportunity for hematologists and practitioners who see both hematologic and oncologic conditions to learn more about pyruvate kinase deficiency in terms of identifying patients who should be tested for it, screening patients and monitoring them over time for under-recognized complications that they face, and determining how these patients are best managed. In addition, it was a good opportunity to share some of the clinical development that has been going on in this disease and potential for future treatments and how Wilma Barcellini and I think about those treatments and a framework for identifying perhaps in the future which patients might be best managed in different ways. I studied congenital dyserythropoietic uh, anemia type 2 many years ago when uh, I saw for the first time a young patient who had parenchymal iron overload but was anemic, severely anemic, and we did a bone marrow aspiration and found morphologic dysplasia in uh, bone marrow immature red cells. And so we eventually concluded for congenital dyserythropoietic anemia type 2 and also concluded that this was iron-loading anemia. And I am very, very proud that the mechanism of iron loading has been defined in the subsequent years. And Achille, in his review article, covers this aspect very, very elegantly. So the erythroblast in congenital dyserythropoietic anemia type 2 release a molecule called erythroferron which suppresses production of uh, epsidin, and this in turn results in uh, excessive iron absorption and excessive release of iron by reticuloendothelial cells. When I was requested to contribute to this series of blood, I was proud to participate. And also I realized that there will be the possibility to present the new on the diagnosis and treatment of this type of anemias. Regarding the diagnosis, now we use the so-called NGS technologies for finding the right gene causative for this type of anemias. And when we applied to this in a larger series of our patients, we realized that at least a part, 10-15% of patients do not have this type of anemia but have pyruvate kinase deficiency. So the problem we realized was the confusion in the diagnosis because the morphological appearance of bone marrow is a morphological appearance of a stressed bone marrow. 
it's not a particular form of inherited anemia in any case. So the problem, we realized that we have the possibility to perform the right diagnosis for the patients, and this could change the quality of life because today we had drugs for this type of patients. So it changed the life of these patients to have the right diagnosis and not confused diagnosis. Um, the second problem is related to, to the pathophysiology of this anemia because we had the possibility to study these patients and realize that uh, the true problem in a part of patients was the anemia and the transfusion dependence, but in a large part of patients was the iron overload, not the anemia because the anemia is mild. And for these patients, to know the pathogenesis of the iron overload, it's very important to find the right treatment of these patients to avoid the complications of iron overload. I think the importance of finding the right diagnosis for patients with inherited anemias is critically important, especially now that we have new treatments for specific diagnoses. And I think the importance of genetic testing can't be emphasized enough. I think there are some practices where patients have hemolytic anemias and further testing hasn't been done and patients are managed very similarly. But these patients have differences in the rates of complications and in the rates of complications after certain interventions like splenectomy. And in addition to that, these new treatment opportunities should be offered to patients based on the correct diagnosis. Most of these inherited anemias so far didn't have any effective treatment. But thank you to the advances in molecular genetics and in general in our understanding of the pathophysiology of these disorders, now the scientific community is developing novel treatments, which may include enzyme activators, as Rachel has shown in her nice study in the New England Journal of Medicine, or for the future in gene therapy. And again, pyruvate kinase deficiency may be one of the disorders that could benefit from gene therapy in the future because it's a monogene disorder. Would you like to comment, Rachel? Right now, we only have animal model data for gene therapy, although these results look promising, and they're promising enough that there is now an open trial for gene therapy for patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency. For practitioners, pyruvate kinase deficiency is rare, and so an individual provider may only have one patient in their practice who has this disorder. I think where this review article could be helpful is in thinking about how to manage that individual patient in terms of the monitoring that they need and thinking about treatment options. Who, is, who should have a splenectomy? Who might not respond well to a splenectomy? When should patients be transfused? What else needs to be monitored for? For example, iron overload in this condition also is very high, even in patients who aren't transfused. And then it also gives opportunity for these practitioners to see treatments that may be coming in the future. As I mentioned earlier, there are PK activators in clinical development. Midipivit, which has been studied in patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency, has been shown to raise the hemoglobin in the phase two trial in half of the patients. 
but that also means half of the patients didn't have a hemoglobin increase. And there are response correlations in that trial. For example, there's a genotype hemoglobin response correlation. And I think where gene therapy offers potential future treatment opportunity is in those patients that don't have a response to this drug, should it be approved in the future, those patients are often very anemic, very symptomatic on transfusions and need a, a treatment opportunity as well. And so I look forward to seeing the results of the human gene therapy trial going forward. I want to underline another aspect. When we perform the analysis by means of the new technologies for the diagnosis of this type of monogenic, of the so-called monogenic disease, we realize that sometimes the clinical heterogeneity of the manifestation of disease is not due to the presence of one gene involvement, but more than one gene is involved in realizing the worsen of the phenotype. This is very crucial because in the future, when you want to apply for the technologies to resolve the disease like gene therapy or also gene editing, you have to realize that if the phenotype is due to degenic or trigenic condition, you could ameliorate one aspect but not resolve the disease. A general comment. I think that, for instance, Achille identified the gene responsible for one of the most common of these rare disorders. So at that time when you find causal mutant gene, it's very exciting. And Rachel, I think when you can say better than me, when you saw your first patient responding to treatment with the amelioration of anemia? When the first patients enrolled on the trial for midapivot, no one knew if this drug would have an effect in people who had pyruvate kinase deficiency. And so it was with great pleasure and surprise to see a hemoglobin increase in a patient on the trial and really to hear from the patient how they felt on the drug and what a significant difference it made in their everyday life in terms of their level of fatigue, their activity level, their employment. Certainly, in my experience, one of the most exciting moments was when we found the gene of, uh, after a long search of uh, CDA2, because we realized that we opened the door for uh, new opportunities for these patients. The first one was the prenatal diagnosis, but also to study better the mechanism and the found tailored treatment for this condition. The name of this condition is congenital dyserthropoietic anemias, but uh, this type of anemias are not congenital because uh, we perform the diagnosis also in uh, a man of uh, 80 years old, so certainly not congenital, it's inherited. This is the first point, and uh, the point is that we could uh, clarify how we'll develop this anemia to perform not only the search of a right mutation for this condition, but also we perform study on the modifier genes, the cohort of the genes of the genome that realize a, a phenotype. This is the future. When we will have in the future a new diagnosis, it's not more sufficient to have only the first mutated genes, but a cohort of genes that will determine the phenotypes. So we'll have uh, certainly also a prognostic uh, method to found. 
you have a thyroid prognosis. So it's not only important to found the mutation, but to found all the mutated genes that cooperate in realizing a phenotype. When the patients who respond to midapivot found out that their hemoglobin had increased, they were so delighted. I have to say too though that these patients are delighted that people are interested in their disease, that it's very rare. We've known about the disease for decades and there have been no treatment developments. And so these patients are so happy that there are hematologists and researchers and companies who are interested in moving this disease area forward and offering new treatments. And so I think it's not just in those patients who have a hemoglobin response, but it's for the community that there is work being done and that there will be other opportunities potentially in the future like gene therapy. And I think the article, I hope, will bring attention to the disease and the estimated prevalence is higher than what we see in clinical practice. And so I'm hoping it will help people to, to test more patients where they have an unknown type of hemolytic anemia and perhaps identify that they have pyruvate kinase deficiency. And I hope it helps practitioners who don't see very many patients with the disease to perhaps manage their patients similarly. I hope this review article will be helpful to our readers and also this interview. And I thank you very much, Rachel Grace and Achille Yolaskon, for participating. Thank you for listening to this review series summary with Drs. Cazola, Grace, and Lolaskin. To read the articles, visit www.bloodjournal.org. This presentation is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology.